0: Have you ever had to apologize to someone? Or even better, has someone apologized to you and it felt like it wasn't really authentic? In reality, there's a lot of ways to give and receive an apology, and sometimes it can be really sincere and genuine, while other times that apology can be a massive fail. If you've ever heard or said the following, I'm sorry you feel that way, or I'm sorry, but blah, 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 or my favorite, I'm sorry, there, I said it, are you happy now? Then this is an episode you're going to want to listen to. Today, we're talking with Marjorie Ingle and Susan McCarthy, who are experts on this topic and also authors of the book, Sorry, 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 The Case for a Good Apology. In this episode, we'll talk about what makes a good apology and what makes a bad apology, and how we can just do a little bit better of owning up to what we say and how we say it. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to make it better. I'm Meredith Black.
1: I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley.
0: Welcome to Reconsidering.
1: You ready? Yep. Ready to play. Let's go. Okay. Twitter or Facebook?
2: (laughs) Facebook. Although that's like asking like firing squad or electric chair.
1: (laughs) Okay. Fair, fair response. In public or in private? Both diplomat or politician diplomat a hug or a handshake
2: depends on the person on the other end of the arm (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. intent or impact
2: impact no question
1: apology or regret apology rehearsed or ad-libbed rehearsed now or later
2: depends on the recipient
1: letter or text
2: depends on the apology.
3: (laughs) Me or you?
2: All about you, babe.
3: (laughs) I think that what you're doing is such important work because learning to apologize is a life changing skill. It has been a life changing skill for me. I grew up in a family in the Midwest where apologies just like they didn't exist. And your bingo cards of the bad apologies, which I'd love for you to sort of break down because those were great. I was just like, Yes, that's exactly how it's done. <laughs> you know, so when I got married, you know, 20-some years ago, I was not equipped to apologize effectively. And that became an issue. My wife's just like, hey, you suck at apologies. You're going to have to get better at this. And I did. I, you know, it was just sort of like learning to, like, it's not dangerous. It's a bit like dancing to me. It's like, it's so scary to get on the dance floor. And then you get out there and it's like, well, this ain't so bad. No one's making fun of me when I look silly on the dance floor. It's like, come on in. The water's fine, to mix my metaphors. But, you know, it's a really powerful, powerful skill. And I have used it with my kids as well. You know, I'm raising two sons and I'm not a perfect parent. Like being able to apologize to your kids so they can see you as a human being, powerful, life-changing. There's not a question in this. It's just... (laughs) I don't know, like maybe you could share some of the stories where people's lives were really shifted in a different direction because they were able to apologize.
4: There's a great apology story from the uh, Hollywood designer, Chad Michael Morissette. One day out of the blue, he got email from, I guess, through Facebook saying, I don't know if you remember me from high school my daughter is uh, doing a unit on bullying, and she's was asking me questions about bullying, and she asked me if I had ever bullied anyone. And I thought, and I realized that I had bullied you terribly in high school, and I feel really bad about it, and I had to tell my daughter that I had, and I want to apologize to you. That was, That was wrong. And... Morissette had to think about that. He had been bullied horribly. He left the small town where this happened as soon as he was, as I think, when he was 16 years old. He had been bullied, not only by this guy whom he didn't particularly remember, but many people, everyone on the football team. He actually had to be. He was a small kid, and he had to be escorted down the halls for his own safety, because the bullying was so bad. And he thought about it for a couple of days, and he wrote back, and he said, "Thank you." I that. Means a lot to me. No one else has ever apologized to me for what went on at that time. Thank you. That means a lot. And then the guy who had apologized was also really moved by having his apology accepted. And he said, Thank you so much. And this apology sequence went viral. People loved this because so many of us never got an apology for what happened in high school or junior high school.
1: I was wondering if you could deconstruct that emotionally for me a little bit. Like a lot of times when we apologize, we're in a real time relationship and there's some tension in the relationship that we're trying to resolve. Through an apology, because we want the relationship to continue. But in that story, and, and I think in one of the other interviews I heard with you, you mentioned another one about a uh, boyfriend. I think it was contacting a girlfriend sometime after the fact and saying, "Thank you, you've made me a better a better man," and it's going to play off my marriage now, which was also that beautiful. Was
2: me. <laughs> my ex. Oh, oh there oh. you go. And it was a real. It was an ugly breakup, and I second guessed myself for years about like, why did I stay in that relationship so long? Am I an idiot? And then I got a letter from him. I hadn't heard from him in years. And I got a letter with no return address and a, a really pretty stationery, and him just saying, I know it didn't seem like I was listening when we were together. And I'd want you to think about the time w- that we were together a lot. And having dated you, you know, I'm getting married and having dated you, I I'm going to be a better husband because of the things that you taught me. And, you know, I'm sorry I was a crappy boyfriend to you, and I'm determined to do better. And, like, there was no expectation that I had to respond, but it felt so good because it recast the whole past for me. And I could remember all the good times we'd had and what I liked about him. And, you know, I felt like I mean, this is a funny leap that I'm making in my head, but we talk about medical apologies and why doctors are so reluctant to apologize. But the thing that patients want is they want to know their suffering meant something and they want to know that this won't happen to someone else. And as I'm saying this to you out loud now, I'm realizing that's what I got from that apology from this guy was that, you know, my suffering meant something, (laughs) which is, you know, melodramatic, but, also, true. it just felt so good, well, and to add
0: to that, I love the fact that he didn't even put his return address because it was kind of like this like closure for him to write this, but he wasn't expecting anything from you in return. It was a genuine apology. I don't need anything returned. Like this is how it is. I don't know. It just makes it seem almost like more meaningful in a way no. <laughs>
2: I mean, the whole point of an apology is you are putting the other person ahead of you. And that encapsulates it. You know, I'm not expecting you to respond to this. You know, is just, wow. Hmm.
1: I think that's the part I'm kind of curious about. And the reason I wanted to ask about is is I'm trying to intersect this with some of the stuff that we learned from Dan Pink about regret. You know, there's things that I think about apologizing for that happened decades ago. And honestly, I can't figure out if my... Motives are as noble as some of the ones you guys have talked about of putting the other person in the forefront. Is my tension about making those apologies because I want to do that for them or it's some way of assuaging my own regret? And so I'm sort of curious. These time distanced apologies seem to be of a different character to me.
2: You ask really good questions. You know, on the one hand, it is never too late to apologize. People say, is it ever too late to apologize? The answer is no. However, does the person want to hear from you? Would they welcome hearing from you? And there may be people who are connected to both of you who you could sort of use to feel out. You know, do you think that I could, you know, reach out to so-and-so, this has weighed on me? Because if it weighs on you, it may also have weighed on them. But if you are entirely in the wrong, certainly one of the things that we talk about in the book is never apologize to someone who doesn't have an out. Like I once had a colleague try to apologize to me after we had a tiff and he was in the doorway of my cubicle and it was like I had nowhere to go and I did not want to talk about this. You never apologize to someone in a car, you know, if it's a big deal. If this incident is from a long time ago, it sounds like this could be an opportunity for nice stationery and a stamp, which always says this is important and I care. But if, you know, especially if it was a time in your life when you were in a little bit of a destructive phase, shall we say, somebody might not welcome hearing from you at all. And that is something that you have to sit with.
4: Go back to apologies from high school and junior high school, as in the case of Chad Michael Morissette. I think those apologies can mean a surprising amount because a lot of us internalize unpleasant things about ourselves at that time of the life. People don't want to be with me. People don't like me. I'm always, you know, I always say the wrong thing. I should just shut up. That stuff you can carry with you your whole life. And getting an apology for something that happened at that time can counteract those messages. And it can also counteract the feeling that, you know, it's not important if bad things happen to you. It's not important if you feel bad, you know, because you're just not that valuable. And so an apology for something long ago like that can be amazingly powerful.
3: I like what you said, Marjorie, about recasting the past, because that is essentially what can happen through an apology, that it reframes the way that, you know, your connection to those experiences. And, you know, like, it does assuage regret. It also changes your personal narrative. It's very powerful. I was on the receiving end of one of those
1: high school apologies as well, where a former girlfriend reached out to me and apologized on Facebook. It is kind of interesting because your inner, I don't want to say your inner child, but like your inner teenager, it gets set (laughs) into a certain thing. And that does kind of carry with you even decades and decades and decades later. And it is fascinating how somebody can go back and just sort of move that arc of your personality a little bit. And then it just sort of suddenly catapults through decades and changes how you feel about who you are now.
0: Yeah. The thing that always gets me with that is, you know, I, if I think about something, you know, that happened in grade school or high school and I think about that person saying something mean to me, I always look back like many, many years later and I'm like, well, I'm not that person. Like, they're probably not that person either. Right. And so maybe I'm just like altruistically giving people the benefit of the doubt. But I also think that there's, for me, no expectation for an apology because who even knows if they remember doing it. Like, it's internally scarring to us, but, like, do they even know? Like, does that hit the same, like, I don't know, childhood scarring meter that it does for us, so to speak?
4: Well, that's one reason why after our the last of our apology steps, there's a half step of listen. I have apologized to people for things in the past, some of which they remembered and some of which they did not. Uh, even if they didn't remember it, it put my conscience at ease, but if you listen if you apologize, and then you listen, and they can say, boy, I don't remember that at all, or, yeah, I remember that. That was bad, and thank you. I'm a, I accept your apology.
3: Could you just lay out the steps of an apology? Like, what is a good apology? What are the components of a good apology?
2: How about we do it fast, and then we can delve into the steps more if you want, just so we can keep those six and a half steps together? Susan, you want to alternate? (laughs) Sure. Okay, number one is say you're sorry. Use those words. Do not say regret. Say sorry or apologize.
4: Number two is say what you're
2: apologizing for. Be specific. Number three is show that you understand why the thing that you did was harmful or hurtful. Number four is don't make excuses. Explain only if you need to. Number five is is
4: tell us the steps that you are taking to ensure that this never happens again. And number six is make amends, make reparation if it's appropriate. Pay for the dry cleaning.
2: Right, and then that half step is listen, let the other person have their say, don't interrupt, even if it's hard.
3: I used these steps with my sons the other day. They were fighting, kind of physical fighting, and I sat them down calmly, And I said, we're going to learn how to do an apology. I read this book. I taught them those steps. They apologized to one another in a way that they haven't before and totally squashed the fight. I mean, it was kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. This is a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old.
2: Oh, wow. Aaron, thank you so much for telling us this. It's so great. I don't think anybody's ever told us they did these steps with a kid before.
3: Yeah. So I have a request. I want a poster. I want a poster of these steps. I think everybody needs to buy this poster and hang it in their house.
0: Yeah, Erin and I were talking about that the other day. Like, not only in your house, but like in your work environment. How great yeah. would a poster of this be? Like in like every conference room that so ever so powerful, had. so powerful. People can actually be conscious of what they're saying, how they're saying, and if they don't say it the right way, they have an out to say it, and it's kind of like an acceptable way to say it, and it encourages people to do it. So we'll help find you a designer for the poster.
2: Thank you. <laughs> I love that. I actually asked our publisher to make a graphic. So we do have a graphic, which I will send to you. And if any of your listeners want to reach out, I will happily send it to them. But yeah, it's just, you know, A, I workshop my apologies with Susan before I have to make them because that step number four is hard for me. I tend to make excuses. I know that about myself. And Susan will pull me back from the brink and say, not relevant. Separate conversation. Separate conversation. And I have the list in front of me. If I'm on the phone or writing an email or texting because, you know, brains are scary, naughty things and they will do what they have to do to
4: avoid being vulnerable.
1: How did you guys arrive at that framework? I mean, it's a beautiful framework. I'm just, how did you get there?
4: We looked at a lot of apologies that are available in the public sphere in, in one medium or another and asked ourselves, is this good? Is this not good? What's wrong with this? What's right with this? And this is one of the things that at Sorry Watch we get a whole lot is people say, is this a good apology? And oftentimes it'll be a profuse apology where someone is saying how terrible they feel and how they're a work in progress and how that was 18 years ago and they were taken out of context. And we sort of gradually pulled out the principles. And, of course, there are sort of auxiliary principles like, Who are you apologizing to? Are you apologizing to the person whose car you crashed into? Or are you apologizing to the team for making them look bad? Are you apologizing to your party for making them look bad? We really analyzed these apologies. We took them apart step by step. I also think anybody
2: who writes about or researches about apology owes a big debt of gratitude to a psychiatrist named Adam Lazar, who wrote a book, Years and years Aaron ago, Lazar. yeah. Who wrote a book on apology, and he had a set of of steps and ideas, but they were a little more, I guess, diffuse than ours. But I think his thinking really influenced our thinking. And also, the psychiatrist Harriet Lerner has written about apology. There are a lot of really good thinkers about apology in this. I guess I hate saying in the space. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a certain kind of social science, right?
2: Yeah. You know, we started doing the website a decade ago and we're journalists, so we're used to moving on. You know, we love to do research, but we're also used to moving on. And I think that the subject of apology is so rich and so resonant and touches on brain science and sociology and pop culture and history for a zillion different countries that we're not bored. And I don't see us ever getting bored of this incredibly nuanced human topic.
0: Do you think the nature of, I don't know, especially the past 20 plus years with the internet and social media and, you know, everything being in everybody's face all of the time, do you think that's changed the nature of how we apologize or maybe why people Apologize in a maybe disingenuous kind of way because it's more publicized
2: and maybe more performative. Exactly. I think the internet and social media have been a real, they've been a mixed blessing, which means they have been a blessing in some ways in that they make discussing apologies happen in the public sphere. A good thing about social media is that it has amplified previously underheard, underlistened to, undervalued voices. And there's a certain level playing field about something like Twitter, where, you know, a regular human being can talk about a terrible customer service interaction and that can go viral and that can force a company to respond in a way that they might not have had to 20 years ago. But on the other hand, the notion of the unhelpful pylon public shaming in a way that isn't about calling someone in to educate them, but calling someone out to shame them, we don't really learn through shame. We may learn through guilt, but the internet is really good at pushing one into the other. Some interviewers have asked us about, oh, why bother to apologize when you're just going to get dragged on social media? And we point out that good apologies also go viral and it doesn't matter. You know, you're apologizing for you and you are apologizing for the person you wrong, not for the rabble.
4: I would also say that what I've discovered about learning, mostly through researching animal behavior, is that one of the best ways to learn something is not to be taught, but to watch someone else get taught. It takes the pressure off. You see the steps, you hear the explanation, you see the mistakes that the other person is making, and you think to yourself, oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say that. And you learn that way. And that's something that happens in social media, I believe, is we see other people apologize well or badly. If they apologize badly, we see other people go, wait, 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 you're blaming her? And so we learn that way. So I think that when we started, there was less awareness, for example, of how bad it is to apologize by say sorry, if. And now I think Everybody recognizes sorry if is just no, start over. Yes, it's funny that that idea
1: of watching others learn is an interesting way to learn. I feel like that was the role of fiction for a very long time. And that if you read stuff like Pride and Prejudice or Les Miserables or Don Quixote or a whole host of other books, that that was sort of the role that they filled. You know, and certainly religious texts as well. It seems like modern literature in a lot of modern cultures just kind of turned to pure entertainment. And that maybe we've kind of moved into this environment of just reality TV if you will at scale. We're sort of watching each other learn whereas we used to watch fictional characters learn.
2: I mean it's funny. I saw a tweet from a Gen Zer not long ago saying between everything everywhere all at once, Coco, Moana, what's the one with we got we have to talk about Bruno, Encanto. Encanto and then there were a couple more. It seems like Millennials really want to see entertainment about their parents apologizing to them. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Finding
1: Nemo as well. Yeah. Even Ratatouille would fit that. And The Incredibles, now that we're mentioning it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, so. So much of, I think, the pop culture that we find meaningful is about reconciliation and apology. So maybe we're not getting it through literature quite as much, and maybe because our world is so much more fragmented, people aren't all reading the same books. There isn't that same sort of 1950s blockbuster that everybody read. But I feel like we are sharing these conversations about apologies and seeing them beautifully enacted in stories.
1: Yeah, yeah. Certainly, your examples there point out the fact that people still crave this, however, they're getting it. Like, we want to somehow watch others apologize.
2: Like, I just think Everything Everywhere All at Once was such a great movie on a million different levels, but one of them was about vulnerability and apology.
3: We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith. I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith?
0: Yeah, I've tried it, and I have to say I look forward to taking it every day now.
3: Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up, and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive.
0: Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient, and it's also so much more
3: affordable. And it actually tastes good, too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee, and when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best.
0: So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com reconsidering and get your AG1 today.
3: That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now, back to the show. Could you show us, by way of examples that we might be familiar with, what are the wrong things to do with an apology?
2: Okay, so my best example for a sustained apology that is like one continuous bad apology bingo card is Ellen DeGeneres apologizing after all of these, I think there were like 83 stories about racist, bullying, serially sexual harassing producers on her show. And then stories from famous and non-famous people about Ellen being a jerk to them. So she said that, Her show was supposed to be a place of happiness. No one would ever raise their voice and everyone would be treated with respect. Obviously, something changed, which to me is just like, you know, suddenly Emperor Palpatine returned. (laughs) I'm like, what? (laughs) And I am disappointed to learn that this has not been the case. And for that, I am sorry. Anyone who knows me knows it's the opposite of what I believe. So that's awful. And then her public apology was, if possible, even worse. So a million people, not a million, because I don't actually know TV numbers, the gazillion people tuned in to hear her apology for the toxic work environment at her show. And she said, as you may have heard, there were allegations. Okay, if the word allegations is in your apology, you have made a terrible, terrible error. Um, <laughs> I learned that things happened here that never should have happened. I'm sorry to the people who were affected. And she said, being known as the be kind lady is a tricky position to be in. Let me give you some advice. If anyone's thinking of changing their name, do not go with the be kind lady. Ha ha ha. That's so funny, Ellen. Like calling yourself kind actually means you have to be kind. Ha 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 ha. That's hilarious. Um, so she said that articles in the the media claimed that she was not the person she was supposed to be. And the truth is I am that person. I get anxious, I get impatient. I am a work in progress, which is absolutely on one of our bad apology bingo cards. And she said, if I've ever let someone down, if I've ever hurt anyone's feelings, I am so sorry for that. If, if, if. And of course, we've all let people down. We've all hurt people's feelings. I mean, that's just being human. So I think that it is telling that after that initial show, her ratings plummeted. And I think she was off the air like four months after that. I like when the New York times gets really snotty and the Times said something about her ratings were no longer, you know, like two months later, her ratings were no longer in competition with Dr. Phil. They were now with that guy who used to be Jerry Springer's security guard who had a talk show. You know. <laughs> uh, so not good. <laughs> and I think people do get vindictive when they are confronted with bad apology after bad apology. That was that United thing. Remember when the guy, the old man was dragged off the flight in a quote overbooking situation and like United issued terrible apology after terrible apology and people get madder and madder and madder.
3: So break that down. What were the specific things that she did wrong? You pointed out a couple things.
2: Yeah. She did not take any responsibility. You know, it was that old, you know, mistakes were made. It was, this happened on my watch, which a lot of politicians do. That's not ownership. You know, the fish rots from the head down, as my Jewish grandmother would have said. There was a lot of what happened and no specifics. She never addressed the fact that people had stories about her. Those were not addressed at all. There was no understanding of why what she did was bad, because it was only, it wasn't her. It was just, oh, I wasn't aware of all these terrible things. So she wasn't specific and she didn't discuss impact. Right. Mm -hmm. There was no indication of what steps she was taking to make sure that this problem didn't recur. There was no public offer of repair. And it seemed certainly like there was no listening. So every step of a good apology was missed.
4: No, no. She did say she was sorry. But then she went off the rails. She didn't say what for. No, and she said, I'm sorry to the people who were affected. Oh, so, if
2: if I have ever right. Yes, yes. And she didn't apologize. You know, you need to apologize to everyone. A lot of people do that. I'm sorry to anyone who didn't think that was funny. No. When you do something bad, you apologize to everyone. You don't have to specify. Because when you do something harmful, racist, sexist, misogynist, All of those things affect everyone. They affect the Petri dish that we all live in, the culture that we're all marinating in. So, you know, apologize for contributing to the yuckiness of the discourse, dude.
1: (laughs) I'm wondering if if you could talk, either of you could talk a little bit about institutional apologies, because you mentioned there, you mentioned the example of United. I'm watching Uber these days and I've kind of actually gotten where I'm okay with Uber, although I don't think Uber ever officially apologized, but it feels like they've sort of, I don't know, they've kind of gotten back into a decent place. And I'm not quite sure how. I'm curious, how, like, how does this differ between individual apologies and institutional apologies?
2: You know, we take a good look at a case that's still taught in business schools about the Tylenol poisoning mm-hmm. in the 80s. And yeah. I looked and I never could actually find the words, we're sorry, but the actions that were taken during this crisis were so positive that I think this is the one case I can think of where I'm like, it doesn't even matter. That they didn't say the words, we're sorry, because they were utterly transparent. They pulled every product off every shelf all over the country. They changed the packaging so this could never happen again. They were transparent the whole way through. You know, the CEO was in with the press every single day. It just was so stunning that, of course, you know, Jerry Della Femina, the great ad guy, was like, we are never going to hear the name Tylenol again. This company is done. And nope, you know, it went from zero market share after they pulled that product to completely dominating, you know, which shows you that handling a crisis well and being transparent and the taking of action to make things better, to ensure that this won't happen again is really important. Susan, I think that you should
4: talk a little bit about governmental apologies, if that's okay. I'd love to. Governmental apologies, corporate apologies, all those institutional apologies, we think they should follow the same rules as personal apologies. And strangely enough, governments are at least as reluctant as individuals to take responsibility. Government leaders are all about, well, I didn't do that. Why should I apologize for that? We looked at apologies for a incarceration of Japanese Americans in America and Japanese Canadians in Canada during World War II. And in both cases, there was pressure to apologize afterwards. And there were government leaders saying, I didn't do that. Why should I apologize? And government leaders saying, if I apologize to them, everybody's going to want an apology. And in Canada, Pierre Trudeau just wouldn't apologize. He was pressured by a Brian Mulroney to apologize. And he just said, no, I didn't do it. And then when Brian Mulroney became prime minister, he did apologize. And this was a big apology with reparations involved and a lot of detail. It was a good apology. In the US, Ronald Reagan was like, I didn't do it. Why should I apologize? And then somebody came up with a really great speech that they said Reagan had made to the family of a Japanese-American soldier who was killed in World War II, and it was such a great speech. It's not clear that Reagan ever made this speech, but it was a beautiful, short, eloquent speech, and that kind of swayed Reagan because then he could make the speech again, and he just loved a good speech because he was an actor and understood that, and again, there was a good package of reparations. Those were apologies that meant a great deal to people who had been incarcerated and their families and their descendants. However, I will say that if you apologize to one group of people, it is true that others will say, hey, we deserve an apology, too. And you just got to face that. Yeah, because
1: they probably do deserve an apology, too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's it's also interesting in there that I think in those politicians that were so reluctant to apologize, I think that they're, uh, the way you described it, at least they were kind of operating on behalf of themselves. I didn't do it, so I'm not going to apologize, as opposed to, no, no, you represent the institution and you are apologizing on behalf of the institution. I think maybe in some of the tension and conversation we are having in America today about apologies to African Americans or to Native Americans or whatever, to these groups that have suffered over the centuries and centuries, we're not apologizing for ourselves, at least not per se. We're sort of apologizing for this longer institutional injustice.
4: And isn't it interesting how it is easy to accept the glory of our ancestors who did good things and so hard to accept the reproach for our ancestors who did bad things?
3: What do we do in situations where, you know, individually where we're accused of something, someone feels wronged, and we just don't feel like, you know, we should be making an apology in those situations?
2: I think we'd argue that the first step is to check in with a trusted friend, to say, am I right that I do not owe anyone an apology here? And if your friend agrees with you, then for the most part, I think we'd say, don't apologize. Don't apologize if you're not sorry, because you will apologize badly. And a bad apology is much more damaging than no apology. Your friend, however, might say, well... And then that is when you sit down and you practice and you think about how you can apologize in a way that is authentic. You know, it's interesting. We are journalists. We are researchers. We are not PR people. We are not crisis communications people. Crisis communications people talk about the golden hour where you have to respond immediately or it's too late. And research on interpersonal apologies, particularly by Cynthia France at Oberlin, has said that that's not the case, that it's actually better to wait a little because you're letting the other person process, and you're processing. And you're not responding in the heat of defensiveness, or talking to them when they're absolutely furious. So if you talk to them a little bit later, and then let them have their say, you are more likely to be forgiven.
4: It can also be the case that you can separate the offense into parts. And you can say, you know, I'm not sorry that I told you not to play my guitar, but I shouldn't have yelled at you.
2: Yeah. Or we had an incident where my autistic kid was subject to homophobic bullying at school and the classroom policy when there is a TIF is everyone apologizes, which is a terrible apology. And we couldn't get through it. There was no way to avoid it. So I sat down with Max and we came up with, I'm sorry for disrupting the class, which had nothing to do with, I'm sorry for yelling at the other kid because they weren't sorry. And the conversation was, between me and Max, was, this is a stupid, bad policy. But given that this is the policy, here's how we do it. Oh, and Susan, you had good examples of a, a boss apologizing for the bigger bosses.
4: Yeah, this is something that actually happens a lot. Suppose you're you know the manager of a team, and there's a new policy, and you can't affect that a policy. You didn't come up with it. It's not your idea, but you have to talk to your team about it, and you can say, I'm sorry, I apologize for this. You guys didn't deserve this. You did good work. This is not about you not doing good work, and you deserve an apology for it, and I'm sorry. And that's apologizing in a situation where you don't actually have responsibility because you know those people are owed an apology that no one else is going to give them.
0: Okay, we're going to pivot. I want to be sensitive to your time, but there's one last question that I am just so eager to ask you both. Do we know that animals apologize to each other? And how do they do that? And have we learned anything from that?
2: Wait, can I toot my co-author's horn first? Yeah. Susan is the internationally published co-author of When Elephants Weep. It's been translated into one gazillion languages and sold one gazillion copies. And Susan's job when she is not writing about apologies is to write about animal behavior and science.
4: So Susan, go for it. We actually knew that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you! Yay. We, did, we did our homework. Yeah. Animals do apologize. Not all animals, like not all people. And they have different ways of doing it. But, you know, you'll see kittens or puppies fighting and one of them will bite too hard. You know, play fighting and one of them will bite too hard. And the one that's bitten will go, ah! And then the other one will go, ah! And frantically start licking. You know, like, I'm fixing it, I'm fixing it. You know, we've been actually doing a little research on, mostly you see apology, or as they call it, reconciliation, or even consolation. Mostly you see it in social animals, obviously. they're Who are you going to apologize to if you're solitary? And we see things from elephants comforting other elephants who are upset. Mice who see that other mice are upset and they have no idea why they will come. They will cuddle up with them. They will groom them and lick them. And like, I don't know what's wrong. You're upset. In higher primates, as they're called, Franz Duval has seen things like there'll be two chimpanzees that are fighting and they're angry at each other and they're looking away and they won't communicate. And you'll see another chimp come over and... Take one by the hand and bring them over to the other chimpanzee and encourage them to reconcile and start grooming each other and being friendly again. Animals don't have words. Sometimes they have apologetic sounds. We had the lovely example of the baby dolphin who ignores its mother's call to come back because it's so fun swimming around with, oh, sharks. And when the mother buzzes it and makes it come back or even holds it down against the bottom of the water to show that she is serious about you come when I call you. And the baby dolphin goes to its mother and starts patting her on the head with its flipper in apology. And like, I'm sorry, I didn't come when you called me.
3: That's incredible.
4: That's
0: amazing. We can learn so much from them.
3: (laughs) Tissues all (laughs) around.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was a showstopper. (laughs) Literally. So,
1: <laughs> um, so we do have one question we like to close with. And I'll do this for both of you. We'll go in turn. Susan, we may start with you, but it's the same question for both of you. So Marjorie, you're just going to get a little extra time to think about it. I want you both to kind of pause and think deeply and try to recall who you were when you were 25 years old and try to bring that version of yourself into your present thoughts. And then I want you to imagine sitting down with that person and that 25-year-old version of yourself giving the current version of yourself some advice? What would they tell you? This is a reverse mentoring question. I'm trying to get to what did you know at 25 that perhaps you've lost sight of with where you are now?
4: I think maybe I worried less. And I think that I would be able to tell myself, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, you, you made it. So enjoy yourself more. Enjoy yourself more. I'm having a great time.
2: The 25-year-old me would tell the me-me to remember what it felt like to take more risks and to jump and not know where you were going to land. It's harder to do that when you're thinking about a spouse and when you're thinking about kids. But I think there are still ways to do it. And I think I was so proud of myself at 25 that I had gotten rid of some of the self-consciousness that plagued me in high school and college, that I felt like I had sort of come into my own. I was this young you know, successful magazine girl at a cool magazine in New York City. And I think now after the death of magazines and, you know, feeling like I owe things to everybody else, that it would be
4: fun to feel like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I think I would tell myself, don't forget to go outside.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Truth.
3: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Those are, both, those are both wonderful answers. Thank you. Where can people learn more about each one of you, your book, and the work that you're doing?
4: That would be our website, sorrywatch.com, which is a great place to uh, look for stories of people apologizing badly and well, and which has about the author, and you can uh, email us there.
2: And we also have our book, Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies, which after we hang up with you, we're going to be talking to our agent about they're possibly going to change the title for the paperback. So we'll see what happens there. And Susan also blogs at The Nature of the Beast. And I also blog at MarjorieEngle.com.
3: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your book. I sincerely enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. It was really good.
4: Thank you for telling us about talking to your sons. That means a lot. Oh, it really does. Thank you.
3: We've covered a lot of different topics on reconsidering, but I think this is one of the most important and most unsung skills that I think everybody needs to develop, just learning to apologize I can't overstate it enough that, you know, for me, just learning to apologize, it, it kind of changed my life. I'm curious, what did you learn from our conversation today and how have apologies played a, an important role in your life? Meredith, you want to start?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to my brain is, you know, when you apologize or when I apologize, I apologize out of kind of guilt, and out of shame, and I loved that you know Marjorie and Susan kind of called that out as like you know it's because you are shameful of something. But it, I also think it means that you actually care, and you care enough to make a gesture to somebody else or to a group of people for why you are in the wrong. And I, I I guess I just I never really thought about it like that. And then kind of learning the steps of how to apologize properly, I think there are so many examples of how poor apologies are given. I think we see them every single day. And so it was nice just to have it broken down in a way that you can actually kind of learn a structure or learn a framework like you could other things. I I mean, like I wasn't taught any of that growing up, you know, and Aaron, like you said, you were teaching your kids how to do a proper apology just last week. And I think just tools like this of how to make us better people and People like Susan and Marjorie who are writing this are just incrementally make things better in the long run.
3: Yeah. I mean, the reason why it's so important is it keeps us part of a social structure. There's so many opportunities to fracture our relationships throughout our life, our work relationships, our family relationships, our romantic relationships. And if we don't have ways to repair them, that's a very expensive way to go about life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bob, how about you? What did you take away from this conversation from the book?
1: Yeah, I think there's kind of two threads for me. One is about the content of what they were talking about and Apologies, and another is sort of this process of how they arrived at this framework. So let me st- let me start with that first one, which was to apologize. It forces you into a place where you realize you're not the center of the universe and that other people have their own lives as well and that we're kind of all in this together. And I think it takes a certain amount of maturity and selflessness to be able to get into that space. I also think it's that may account for why some people – end up making the apologies long after something has happened. So people, you know, as they told stories of people as adults apologizing for things that they did in high school, whereas in high school, you just didn't have the self-awareness to realize that other people are having their lives too, you know? And I think as you mature in age, you start to, you look back on those moments and maybe as a teenager or a child, you intuited something that it wasn't quite right, but maybe you couldn't get out of your own head enough to understand what was not right about it. The other piece that I thought was really interesting, and I mentioned it once, like the overlap between what they're talking about and what Dan Pink talked about in Regret, I think is interesting. And that both of those books give us a framework for thinking about a very human experience. And in both cases, they approached the topic as researchers and they basically crowdsourced a whole bunch of examples. And then they analyzed all the examples and created these frameworks and formulas for what makes them work. And so both in the case of regret, it helped me understand, oh, these are the four classes of regrets. And when I feel regret now, I kind of have a framework for how to think about it. And it's the same thing with the apologies. Like, oh, now I have this framework for how to think about an apology. And I, I think this is a really interesting, positive impact of the internet because just being able to crowdsource all these examples and look through them and see which pieces are working, which pieces seem to function better than others. keeps us from having to run all these experiments one by one in our own lives. So if feels like in both cases is a way for us to leverage the learnings of a whole bunch of people and get better at being good people, I guess, or understanding our own emotional experiences.
0: Yeah. You know, it also feels like for me, it feels incredibly intimidating. I think because you've you kind of put everybody on this platform now that they used to not be on. And I do think it is good. I think it's just scary and something you kind of need to overcome. Whereas before, you know, if you apologize to somebody, it might just be heard through telephone what you said and things can get misconstrued. When you say something on the internet or when you write something that's there forever, that doesn't get misconstrued. It is there, it is permanent. And so how are you careful with that as well? And how do you genuinely make an apology versus just throwing something out there? I think you have to be more accountable than I think you might've been used to. I don't know.
3: Yeah. Meredith, I like, What you mentioned about the idea of having apology posters in every conference room. Please. It's really interesting to me. Like, I think all of us can sort of imagine a world where we're able to apologize to our spouse or our significant other, our children, our parents, you know, like these tight family relationships. But an apology at work feels like a whole, like, higher bar. I'm curious, Meredith, why do you think that is? And when have you seen apologies actually work at work?
0: So when I was at Pinterest, we had the saying called say the hard thing, right? And there was a point where we put that poster up in every conference room because people were not saying the hard thing. They were saying the nice thing, right? And that sometimes didn't move things along in a way, right? Like it slowed things down or people just didn't want to hurt other people's feelings or doing this. Then you put say the hard thing in there and it wasn't intentional, but it gave people the opportunity to say things that maybe were a little harsh or maybe not as thought out because they thought they had permission to. And so I see something of like a say the hard thing, which is great because I do think that we kind of tap dance around a lot of stuff that we could maybe just get straight to the point to, especially at work. But I think having the checklist next to it just to like call yourself out of, okay, wait a minute, what am I saying? What is the hard thing? And where do I go? So if I do go off script, like how can I course correct this in a timely way That's not gonna have, you know, like a bad taste on people's mouths when you leave that conference room, you know? And I do think that we get away with not having to apologize at work as much because, you know, well, this is just business. This is just how things need to be. And at the end of the day, we're all literally just human beings doing work and we need to treat each other like human beings. And so with that comes the responsibility of being, if you're a jerk or if you've said something out of line, you should be well-equipped to give an apology and keep that bond going. And maybe it's a stronger bond. I feel like the times where I've apologized to somebody at work, I've gotten stronger bonds with them and still have stronger bonds with them now, like 10 years later than I do the people that, you know, we just kind of were like, eh, okay, they were just in a mood and then moved on. And so I think at the end of the day, it can make an impact for a very, very long time. That's a
1: fascinating point that when you apologize to people at work I think it is a way of showing them that you actually care about the relationship whereas if you didn't care about the relationship you're just like, "Oh, whatever, you know. I was a jerk to you and I don't care." Which is very different from, "I was a jerk to you. I overstepped the boundaries and I'm sorry.
3: I care about our relationship and I want to continue to work together." Aaron, what were your takeaways? I mean, I I just got so much from the book. I just liked having a structure of here's what a good apology looks like and you know, the components and why they're there. And when I hear those, I think, yeah, that's what I would want from an apology as well. And then what a bad apology looks like. I mean, I've pretty much done all of those. Like in the book, they have the bingo card at the end of each chapter of here's what a bad apology looks like. And I've pretty much put a chip on every single one of those at one point or another, but, you know, worked on getting better at that. And I've gone back in some situations, like there was a former colleague who I felt, I just, you know, I didn't give them everything that I thought they deserved at the right time. And I just felt like I needed to give an apology. And I think it sort of touches on what we talked about in the conversation of like, is this for me or is it for them? But I I feel like it was for them. I wasn't trying to get anything back necessarily, but yeah, apologies, they're hard. They're hard to do well. But they're so, man, it just feels so good to do it. It feels so good to not have that on your conscience, not have that regret, or to at least know you gave it your best to try to make amends and be heard. I just take so much away from this book. And we interview lots of amazing people and read lots of amazing books. But I hope listeners will read this one in particular, because I think it's got a lot of really practical, powerful tools built in.
0: Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.